If you would grab you a copy of, of God's Word, if you have one, and go ahead and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 15. We're just going to read the last, well not the last verse, but the last verse we went over last week, verse 15 this morning, and focus our attention there. 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 15. It says this, So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered judgment and justice to all his people. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his word. Gracious Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for revealing yourself to us through your words and works throughout redemptive history. We thank you for inspiring the authors who recorded your words and works. Um, Father, we thank you that you've been pleased to reveal yourself to us, your people. We thank you for the ultimate revelation that came now in these last days through your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that we are the recipients of this, his written word. Father, we're gathered this morning because we recognize that we desperately need to have our minds renewed by it. We desperately need to receive the grace which you graciously offer as we come to hear your word because we know your spirit works in accordance with your word, not apart from it. So would you continue to mold, shape, and fashion us in the likeness of your son, Jesus Christ, as we hear him proclaimed this morning. We ask this in his precious name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. We'll start with a quote this morning from Theodore Roosevelt, who once said this, Justice consists not in being neutral between right and wrong, but finding out the right and upholding it, wherever found, against the wrong. Uh, This morning, we'll be reminded by God's word where the right is found so that we might be a people who uphold the right wherever it's found against the wrong. We take up 2 Samuel 8, verse 15. And in doing so, uh, we've really come to the end of the third section. You can actually think of it as the end of the third chapter in Samuel. Remember, uh, the Old Testament was not originally written with the chapters we find now. It was written with the verses... Uh, It wasn't written with the verses and paragraphs marked out. So instead, literary devices were used to draw to close a specific section. Well, what we have here is actually our third section. This really is a a summary uh, statement of that larger section as a whole. So if you go back and consider the the first two ends of the sections, and uh, 2 Samuel chapter 3 verse 1 is the first one. Uh, Followed by the list of the six sons that were born to David at Hebron, the summary statement says this. Now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. But David grew stronger and stronger and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. That's a literary device letting you know the end of that section of scripture. Then the next section actually ended in 2 Samuel 5 verse 12. That summary statement, followed by the list of 11 more sons born to David in Jerusalem, ends with this. So David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel, 
and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. Now we're coming to the third section, literary device used to mark the end of this section, which is in verse 15. So David reigned over all Israel, and David, David administered judgment and justice to all his people. So you see the progression there, don't you? In the book of 2 Samuel, we've got this long war with the houses of David and Saul. David's house grows stronger. Saul's house grows weaker. Then the establishment and exaltation of David's kingdom. And I'm arguing that we come to the reason for that now in 2 Samuel 8. Uh, Back in 5.12, it said it was for the sake of people. But here we're actually seeing that that's going to be demonstrated. This verse reminds us that David's reign in the context of 2 Samuel was actually God's rule for the sake of his people. And we're going to see that very clearly in two ways this morning. Here's the first way we're going to see it. We're going to see that David's reign was God's reign for the sake of his people making manifest the love of God. David's reign was God's reign for the sake of his people, making manifest the love of God. As we talked about the kingdom of God throughout 2 Samuel, listen, God's people are at long last in God's place under God's rule. How do we know that? Because David administered justice and judgment to all of God's people. So let's break that down just a little bit, okay? First, we do well to remember this. This isn't just any person. David is God's chosen man. That's who David is. The scriptures testify. That's exactly who David is. God's chosen man. If you look back at 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 28 and 29, there we we read those words of Samuel rebuking Saul. And you remember what he says? It says, so Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the strength of Israel will not lie nor relent, for he is not a man that he should relent. In other words, Saul had been condemned and there was a man that was chosen to take his place. And that man, of course, was David. The very next chapter in 1 Samuel chapter 16, we read, So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with bright eyes and good looking. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. Which one? The one that the Lord had chosen. This is the neighbor of Saul who is better than him. This is a man after God's own heart who the spirit of the Lord rushed upon and kept on David from that day forward. So the Lord chose David. David actually expresses this in Psalm 139, a psalm we're familiar with where he says this, For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest places of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they were all written. The days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. So, when did the Lord choose David? 
even before he was born, right? Now, listen, the, the words of David in Psalm 139, they're, they're generally true. The Lord is actually the maker of every single human being. I hope you know that. He's the creator of each and every one who's conceived in the womb. But, but David actually has something else in mind here in Psalm 139. The, the language that's used here is employed in the Bible to speak of what we call election and calling to a specific purpose, office, or role. We see this all throughout the scriptures, right? For example, the Lord tells Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1.5. I love this verse. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. Likewise, Paul recognizes this divine election to a particular office, calling him as an apostle to the Gentiles. He wrote to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. That is exactly what David has in mind here. All this to say, the Lord, by the way, is is not just simply glad all this happened to work out by the end of 2 Samuel 8. No, this is what God ordained in choosing David. The Lord, according to to the Bible, chose David before he was born in order to establish David as king over Israel for the sake of God's people. And just in case you don't see it, look again at what we looked at the last several months in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 8 and 10. This is, remember, as the Lord is speaking to David through the prophet Nathan, look at what he says. Now, therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people over Israel. And I've been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and have made you a great name like the, like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously. You see the connection in chapter 7? The Lord calls David from the pasture, from the sheepfold, from being shepherd of sheep to being the shepherd of God's people, so that God's people might be afflicted and oppressed no more. And the point in all of that is, what God's doing here in 2 Samuel 8 is he's not doing for David specifically. But he's doing for the sake of his people. Hear that. What God is doing is not for David specifically, but for his people. God chooses, calls, equips, and establishes David for the sake of God's people Israel, just as God chose, called, equipped, and established Moses for the sake of God's people, just as he did with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob for the sake of his people Israel. This was for God's people. And friend, hear me, this is true everywhere in the Bible. Genesis is not just about the patriarchs for the sake of the patriarchs. I think we might be tempted to read the scriptures in that way. To think, oh, you know, Genesis, this is really the story of Abraham and God. We, we think in terms of that relationship and forget the fact that God actually called Abraham out of the land of Ur for the sake of the nations. 
We can read the account of Moses and get so sucked into the narrative there about God's relationship with Moses that we lose sight of the fact that God called Moses. Why? Because he heard the cry of his people. And so it is with David. This is the testimony of the scriptures of the whole. Hear me. God does what he does for his people. In order to bless the nations, he's always at work for his people. Now, if you can see that, then then is it a stretch to say that God sent his son into the world, not for the sake of his son, but for the sake of God's people? I say that because I think sometimes we wrongly see God working all things together for his glory as, as somehow being detached from working it also for the good of his people. Now, now, not that you could ever overemphasize the glory of God. But you can, friends, wrongly detach that from God working always and everywhere for the good of his people. And this verse reminds us that what God does in the world, he does always and everywhere for the sake of his people. God has relentlessly worked to bless his people. God did not send his son for the sake of his son as though his son needed glory. And God the Father just thought of this plan. Oh, Jesus, I got it. I know how you can get more glory, son. But before the foundation of the world, there was a people in mind. A people who God loved. A plan unfolded that made that love manifest for the sake of God's people. All to the praise of his glorious grace. But those two can't be detached. Yes, Jesus is the center and pinnacle of all of redemptive history. No one here would argue otherwise. He is the circumference of all human history. It's impossible to overemphasize all of his honor, worthiness, praise, and glory. But if you detach that truth from the son's love for his bride before the foundation of the world, or the father's love for his sheep, or the Holy Spirit and his work in making that love known, then we slowly begin to pervert the love of God. The Son of God loved us, as Paul said, and gave himself for us. The Father loved us, not that we loved him, but he loved us and sent his only Son as a propitiation for our sins, as John writes. So so let me ask you, maybe maybe you're sitting here thinking, okay, why does this matter? Why do we need to constantly remind ourselves of this reality? Here's why. It's because sanctification... Our spiritual growth, right, our putting to death sin and growing in holiness, sanctification is not in the first place mere morality or good conduct. Okay, sanctification at its very root is simply this. It's a growth of the knowledge and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. A growth in our understanding of God's steadfast love for us demonstrated from the moment that Adam fell. And so I just want you to pause for a second and think about the lengths to which our father has gone to demonstrate his steadfast love. The sin and rebellion he endured. The promise he made before we even begin to attempt to contemplate his sending of his only begotten son to take on our flesh and blood. Look, you know I have a six-year-old, a three-year-old, and an almost one-year-old, right? Right? Their sin and rebellion, I love those kids. They're precious little kids. Their sin and rebellion drives me up the wall sometimes, right? 
and I, I see my own sin and rebellion very clearly in them often. And I think to myself, the God of all the universe, the holy and righteous one, has endured not only all of our sins, but all of mankind's sins and rebellion for all the universe. How steadfast and loving and patient is he? He does this all so he might shed his blood to purchase and redeem us from the power and guilt of sin. See, our righteous lives are actually the fruit of renewed minds that are constantly growing in the grace and knowledge of King Jesus. The understanding of God's steadfast love for us is key. So really, to return to our passage, we cannot understand 2 Samuel 8, 15 rightly. We cannot understand it rightly until we see it as a concrete manifestation of the love of God for his people. We cannot understand 2 Samuel 8, 15 rightly until we see it as a concrete manifestation of the love of God for his people. And that's what this is. So David reigned over all Israel and David administered judgment and justice to all his people. Do we understand that? As a concrete manifestation of the love of God for his people in ancient Israel? And look, this, this like we talk about many times, it bleeds backwards and it bleeds forwards. Backwards knowing the defeat that we just read about of the Philistines, the Moabites, the Edomites, the Ammonites. It wasn't just more needless bloodshed. It was God's just judgment against violent men who had afflicted and, afflicted and oppressed his people. It's that physical, temporal, typological salvation of God's people from the nations that rage against the Lord and his anointed. See, if we see God's love in those terms we actually begin to see how fierce his love is for his people. Friends, he's not indifferent to your suffering. He's not indifferent to your struggle. God loves you and is working in time and space to secure your eternal rest. But also, of course, bleeds forward until we arrive in the incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Where rest from our enemies is forever secured and will someday be consummated upon his return. So David's reign was God's reign for the sake of his people making manifest the love of God. But I said there was two points and this is really kind of the main gist of all of this. The main idea of this sermon. We also need to consider that David's reign was God's reign for the sake of his people making manifest the justice of God. God's reign for the sake of his people, making manifest the justice of God. We've already considered how David has been called, but I, I want us now to consider how David's reign was, in fact, God's reign. How do we put those two together? David's reign was God's reign. And by doing that, I want to look at, I already know that the note takers are probably furious with me this morning. Um, but don't worry, you can find all those notes online. Uh, but I want you to look at Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 18 through 20. Uh, when we think about David's reign was God's reign, this is the very short section in regards to the rules and the laws given to the king. So even Deuteronomy, the law of God, the plains of Moab, Moses is giving him the law of, of what is to happen when a king comes and rules over Israel. And look what he says in verse 18. Also it shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book from the one before the priest, the Levites. 
And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, and be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted above his brethren, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, and that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. Here's the point of that passage. The king in Israel, unlike the king of the nations, did not create the law. Right? I mean, the king of Israel received the law. The king of Israel didn't become the king and then decide for himself, according to what was right in his own eyes, how justice should be administered. Instead, his first job was to record the law that was given. He was to receive the law because his job was simply to administer the law and obey it. You see, the king in Israel, again, unlike the kings of the nations, they were not above the law. They were under it. Their primary task was to know the judgments of God and to execute them. The king is obligated to obey the king. <laughs> Little K, big K, right? He, he wasn't a king the way we think of a king as some omnipotent monarch. He was elected by God alone in order to establish God's rule. And David, at least for this moment, is really a great example of what this is supposed to look like. At least here in verse 15, we can actually see a very negative example of this back in 1 Samuel 8. You know what 1 Samuel 8 is, right? That's, that's where Israel rejects the Lord and says, we want a king like the king of the nations. And the Lord says this in chapter 8, verse 9, talking to Samuel. Now, therefore, heed their voice. However, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. That word actually, behavior in the Hebrew, is the same word we find here in 2 Samuel 8, 15. So David reigned over all Israel and administered judgment. Same word. It's really mishpat. There you go, some Hebrew this morning. It's, it's judgment or decision. So in other words, in 1 Samuel 8, we find the Lord saying, heed their words. Do what they want. Only tell them the judgments of that king. Tell them that they will not be righteous judgments. And here they find David's kingdom now established. And what do we find? We find something very important. David administered judgments in righteousness. That's huge. When you think about the story of Samuel and, and, and from First and Second Samuel, it's just huge. David administered judgments in righteousness. And here's where we really get to this understanding of those two words we see describing his reign. Judgments and justice. The first word, again, is the Hebrew word mishpat. It's, it's judgments or decisions. The second word, translated as justice, is really most often translated as righteousness or even equity. The reality is, you could say, David administered justice and justice. But I don't think that's what the writer was really after. Yet these two are often found together. And I think the connotation is David administered judgments in righteousness. They were righteous judgments. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 8, remember, Deuteronomy is the, the covenant ratification ceremony on the plains of Moab just before they enter the promised land. It's Moses' last words to the people of Israel. And these are the most specific explanations of God's rules or command that we can find. In Deuteronomy 4, 8, it says this, 
And what great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments as are in all this law which I set before you today? Or mishpat, it's judgments so righteous. Same two words right there we find here translated justice and judgments. It's a rhetorical question, by the way. The answer is, there are none. The law given to Israel at Mount Sinai and reiterated on the plains of Moab, they are the righteous judgments. Everyone has judgments, don't they? Every one of us makes mishpat. Every kingdom has mishpat. But not all the judgments are righteous judgments, are they? So let's ask, which judgments are righteous That's a big question in our day and age. I don't know if you know that. There's a lot of confusion over that. What are righteous judgments and which judgments are righteous? Well, only those that are are right in the eyes of God. (laughs) Those are the only righteous judgments. Now, there are several places we could go in the scriptures to to use that word pair. It's everywhere, but we don't have time to visit all those. I, I do want to note, though, that the Torah isn't exhaustive. What I mean by that is is this, righteous judgments are also to be understood as the application of the instructions of the Lord to all of life. Righteous judgments, they were also to be understood as the application of that instruction from the Lord to all of life. In other words, what I mean by that is it it wasn't the king's job to be more povic, right? To find out what he's supposed to do when two men show up and claim that the baby's theirs. And look and say, well, Deuteronomy doesn't tell me who's the father, right? You wouldn't look back to the Torah and be like, great, the Lord forgot to cover this one. What do we do? No, the king was to know the Torah. And his heart was to be so filled with God's instruction in such a way that his mind was informed by it. So when he presented with these difficult situations, he was filled with the spirit. He was able to make decisions or judgments in keeping with righteousness. So even though the Torah wasn't intended to be exhaustive, we still do understand that every righteous judgment is still a judgment in keeping with God's righteousness. And and here, kind of begin to think about this as we apply this. Righteous judgments are, at the end of the day, God's judgments. And that means something. It means, hear this, there is no such thing as a neutral judgment. There are no neutral judgments. Friends, if they're not God's judgments, then they're not righteous. This is critical. All righteous judgments are God's rule pertaining to all of life. And just for the sake of clarity, I'm not talking about preferences. Like Sam's Club is better than Costco. Absolute foolishness, by the way. Have you seen those hot dogs? 150, never change. Nothing's better than Costco. But preferences are not what we are talking about here. We're talking about truth, about what one should do or not do. There are no neutral judgments. There are no neutral arenas in this world where God's righteous judgments does not rule. There's no decision that lies outside the purview of God's reign over the created order. That is what the scriptures teach. Justice necessitates an acknowledgement of God and a judgment in keeping with his will. So 
There are plenty of instances, certainly throughout all of human history, where people have given just judgments in keeping with biblical truth without acknowledging God. That argument would actually be made by Paul in Romans chapter 2 that they're actually just testifying to the law of God that was written upon their hearts. But let's flip that over a bit. Let's apply this now. If justice comes from God, then injustice begins with what is right in our own eyes. If justice comes from God, injustice begins with what is right in our own eyes. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord, and you could say the beginning of injustice is the lack of it. When you do what is good and right in the sight of the Lord, it is actually contrasted with everything that is right in your own eyes. We know that. You, you hear that, and you, you, what do you think of? Judges chapter 21, verse 25, right? The summary of the book of Judges. In those days, there's no king in Israel, except there was. They just neglected him. His name is Yahweh. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. See, this is actually part of the reason I wanted to take one verse and kind of unpack this the way we are this morning. Is because, hear me, so many attempts to eradicate injustice in our world eventuate in some new form of injustice. Human history is the long, sad story of injustice. Now, this is not to deny that there have been progress, there has been progress made in some areas. But if we were to honestly appraise our story, it requires us to confess that the progress of good has always been accompanied by the progress of evil. I would actually love to be happy to sit down with anyone who would like to discuss that golden era of human history when justice reigned supremely and injustice was nowhere to be found. You're not a real student of human history if you believe there was ever a period of human history where that was the case. Except one. So David reigned over all Israel and David administered judgment and justice to all his people. See, we as a society may believe that we've made great strides toward justice or equity or righteous judgments. We as a world even may think that our humanistic endeavors to bring peace and goodwill throughout the earth have actually resulted in some amount of progress, yes. But friends, I would argue the blood of a billion and a half babies over the course of less than 50 years is hardly a testimony to our moral progress. Progress and the rights of one group have always come at the cost of rights to another. The eradication of injustice in one arena has always planted the seeds of injustice in another arena. That's human history. And biblically speaking, that should not surprise us. Why? Because injustice begins with the fatal belief that human beings can discern for themselves what is good and evil. That's the beginning of injustice. Because justice is defined by God. All justice is God's justice. If I begin with myself, I begin in injustice. Then I actually am starting from an unrighteous position and hope to attain righteousness. Mahatma Gandhi said this, There is a higher court than courts of justice, and that is the court of conscience. It supersedes all other courts. He's, he's, 
he's half right, not completely wrong. But the problem is, to whatever extent that is true, it's true precisely because human consciences bear witness to an absolute law that was written upon their hearts, according to Romans chapter 2. There is a higher court than the court of men, which was his point. But it's not the court of conscience. It's the court of God Almighty. And our passage reminds us that justice is the reign of God. And there is no justice apart from it. The very best efforts of human beings attempting to establish justice in this world apart from God will never eradicate injustice. Yahweh, Israel's God, the true and living God, as Deuteronomy 32.4 says, He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all His ways are justice. A God of truth and without injustice. Righteous and upright is He. Friends, justice is God's will done on earth as it is in heaven. This is something we know to be true. And yet how often are we tempted to think there are certain areas where what God has to say on the matter just isn't all that important. I mean, after all, we live in an age of grace, right? Martin Luther King Jr. was absolutely right when he said this. He said, true peace is not merely the absence of tension. It is the presence of justice. True peace will require more than the relief of tension by outlawing or destroying everything that offends. It's ludicrous. True peace will not be accomplished by tearing down every wall that separates and everything that condemns. True peace requires the presence of justice. Justice, true justice, is the righteous judgment and condemnation of what is evil and what praises what is good, much to the ire of many. And friends, there will be no peace in our society until there is justice. And there will be no justice as long as we believe we can do whatever is right in our own eyes. So think about this. As we hear this term thrown around all the time, we talked about this this morning in Sunday school. Friends, if you hear some opinions on justice or injustice being thrown around on Facebook, I hope the theology that's driving your argument isn't something else you've heard on Facebook. I hope it's the justice of God as it's clearly been demonstrated out through scriptures. But how quick are we to engage in what we think is right immediately without even consulting God's word? Friend, there's only one who is righteous and just. He's given us his word that reveals that to us. And so one final point that needs to be made here, and I want to hear this. I think I've got two points, but um, two final points that need to be made here. One is this. One of the fundamental characteristics of justice in the Bible is impartiality. I want you to hear this. One of the fundamental characteristics of justice in the Bible is impartiality. It's everywhere, so it's extremely important for us to understand. For instance, if you turn to Leviticus chapter 19, which is a book one might refer to as law or Torah, Leviticus 19 verse 15 says this, You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty. In righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. That wasn't enough for you. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Then I commanded your judges at that time, saying, Hear the cases between your brethren and judge righteously between a man and his brother or the stranger who was with him. You shall not show partiality in judgment. 
We could easily scare up another 20 verses pretty much just by throwing a stone at any place that talks about justice in the scriptures. The prophets say it repeatedly. God is not partial. So God's people are to judge impartially. So you don't defer to the poor and you don't defer to the rich. The impartiality of God is at the very heart of justice. So what does that mean? Here's what it means. Proverbs 17, 15. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the just, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. So a question that I want to leave us with, a question to think through. Okay, then, well, what is the determining factor for what's right and true? How do we we know what is right and true? Obviously, we know it's God's word, but how do we determine this? Well, it's this. It's guidelines, not bloodlines. What is the determining factor for what is right and true? It is guidelines, not bloodlines. What does that mean? Well, the Lord's guidelines are to be the determining factor for what is right and true, not your bloodlines. That's easy enough to understand in the Old Testament. I can actually give you a picture of it. Deuteronomy 13. The entire chapter is about those who would lead others astray. Those who would tempt others to follow someone other than Yahweh. It starts with prophets and then it moves closer to the heart of a person and it reaches a point where it says if your son or your wife or your friend tell you to come follow other gods, you shall be the first to put, take up a stone and put them to death. Now praise the Lord, we don't do that anymore. But friends, hear me, the principle still abides. What is right is right no matter what group you belong to. However in your flesh you define your belonging, it doesn't matter. Right and true transcends it all. If there's a crime in the midst of that crime, what is right and true is not dependent on where that person came from or their family history or their socioeconomic position. There is a truth and justice that requires a judgment that cannot be made until that truth is understood. Guidelines, not bloodlines. And at the end of the day, the reality is the impartiality of God in judgment should terrify each and every one of us. Guidelines, not bloodlines. You know what it means? It means it doesn't matter what family you're born into, what education you have, what your ethnicity is. It doesn't matter how much money you have in your bank account. What matters is there's a day where you will stand before an almighty, all-powerful God and give an account for every thought that you thought, every word you spoke, every deed done, and perfect justice will be rendered. Either upon you, apart from Christ, or on the Son of God, Jesus Christ, on your behalf. Listen, in the end, the beauty of this, we get into using the Gray Havens expression, often I love it. In the end, everything sad will become untrue. So I'll close with this. All injustice at the end of the day will be made just. All of it. As those who have perpetuated those injustices will for all eternity suffer the consequences of raging against a holy and just God. Church, justice is a certainty. It's why it's helpful to remember that what God does here is not for the sake of David, but for the sake of his people. The manifestation of God's love and justice preparing us for the coming of his son, Jesus Christ. 
Jesus' reign is the kingdom of God fully and finally exercised as it should be. And even now, Jesus reigns administering perfect judgments and justice. Just think in those terms. The incarnation, the life of Christ, as he delighted in the righteous judgments of God, allowing himself to be led like a lamb to the slaughter, refusing to even open his mouth, instead entrusting himself to the righteous judgment of God, suffering the righteous judgment of God against the sins of his people, vindicated by the righteous judgment of God on the third day when he was raised again, manifesting now the righteous judgment of God to the proclamation of the gospel, the good news that there is a God who is the just and the justifier of the one who will have faith in Jesus Christ and saints, Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. He will execute the righteous judgments of God. If you can hear my words, therefore, and you have not yet trusted in Christ, you need to understand that when he returns, he will execute perfect, impartial judgment. And it will not matter whether your parents are Christian, whether they brought you to church week in and week out. It will not matter how morally upright you think that you are. You will be judged according to the perfect, righteous law of God. And his judgment will be completely righteous. You have but one hope. One out. One way, God the Father sent His Son to be the propitiation of our sins. He offered Him for a sacrifice that He might shed His blood and stand in our stead and receive in Himself the due penalty for our sins. And friends, that is really, really stinking good news. For those of us who have heard and believed, who do understand what justice actually is, it means something for us though. It means, friends, that you and I actually have a responsibility in our day and age to act in accordance with it. To boldly fight for when whatever sphere the Lord's placed us. It means that you and I are not to retreat into bunkers or caves, but instead go forth into the culture saying, that is evil and that is good. And how do I know? Not because I'm any smarter or wiser, but simply because I know the one who knows. True peace requires justice, which requires reconciliation with God. And so let us be a people who overcome evil with good, proclaiming the loving justice of God. In conclusion, I think I've said that four times now. David's reign was God's rule for God's people, manifesting his just love. Praise be to God for the true and better David who has established his administering and will consummate God's rule for God's people forever. Would you stand as we close this morning? Gracious Father, you know how we still struggle with doing what is right in our own eyes, discerning our, on our own apart from your will, apart from your word, Apart from a proper application from the principles found within it. Apart from a complete dependence upon your spirit. Apart from acknowledging that you're the sole definer of what is just. Father, would you please forgive your people and cleanse us of this foolishness. Would you help us to be a people whose minds are renewed and transformed by your word. Lord, let justice start in our homes. Let us be a people who celebrate your love made manifest through the sending of your son for the sake of your people.
Father, enable us, encourage us, equip us. Because we are unable on our own. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.